97 South's Storytellers features conversations with professional songwriters and seeks to pull back the curtain on the art, craft, and career of songwriting. We'll bring you to those magical moments of creativity that have delivered the inspiring songs that make up the soundtrack of our lives. I'm Paul McGuire, and this is part two of my conversation with the legendary songwriter and composer, Jim Valance. Jim, is there a... um? Some of the bands that, that I love have often done acoustic versions of some of their big, layered, hugely produced songs. It almost like becomes a folk song at its core. Is there, is there anything to that theory? Like if you break it down, a, a guy in a guitar or a gal in a guitar can just sing it. You know that's the essence of a good song? That's a really, really good question. And it sort of dovetails with my sort of comment earlier about choruses. That's the other kind of, and I hate to use the word rule, but maybe, you know, axiom or whatever yeah i call it a campfire thing if you, if you can with an acoustic guitar sing a song around a campfire and it doesn't need orchestration and drums and you know the, all the bells and whistles yeah if it's at its core if it's a great song then that's another test yeah have you um taught do you teach songwriting ever have you have you done that a lot in your life well, kind of. Um, I, I've done a lot of workshops. So I was on the board of SOCAN, yes. which is the Society of Songwriters for Canada, and also the Songwriters Association of Canada. And as sort of a, you know, wanting to give something back, uh, for a couple of years, I did a lot of seminars where I, I literally went from Vancouver all the way to St. John's, Newfoundland, and, you know, everywhere in between. And there would be a gathering of, say, 100 or sometimes more uh, people in a room. Yeah. And sometimes it would be just me, and on a couple of occasions I did panels. Uh, there was one in Montreal, I remember. It was me, uh, the producer Bob Ezrin, you know, who yep, of course. produced Pink Floyd and Alice Cooper. And then there was a record company guy and a radio uh, DJ, and then four of us. So there's a, a hundred or so people in the room. The way this particular seminar in... Montreal was done, and I did a bunch of these. It was called a date with a tape. So people would bring uh, a CD of a song they'd written and toss them in a bin at the front, and we would randomly take a, a song out and we'd play it, first verse and first chorus, and then stop. And then uh, the songwriter, if they wanted to identify themselves, they could, and if not, we would just carry on with our comments anyway. And the comments were obviously helpful to that songwriter, but also to the whole room. Sure. Um, that's a great idea, by the way. I love that. that that's, there's yeah. a TV show in there somewhere. It's great. Yeah. yeah. But, but what I discovered doing that is out of 100 people in a room, uh, what I took away from it was there's probably one person who was ever, ever going to write a song that was, you know, found a home anywhere. And my favorite personal comment was uh, one of the songs we played Someone had obviously spent a lot of money and gone in the studio and hired professional musicians and, and so on. Uh, and then there was another song that was just uh, sung into a cassette machine with just a acoustic guitar and a vocal. And yep. it was not beautifully sung or performed. But my comment about the first song was, this is a really good recording of a really bad song. Yeah. And, and my comment about the other one was, this is a really bad recording of a really good song. So I, you know, I learned a lot. I think I ended up learning more from these seminars than the people who attended. Certainly um, reinforced my uh, belief uh, 
back to your question from a few minutes ago that if, if you can play it on an acoustic guitar and have it communicate the, your intended idea, then you've succeeded. And if you haven't succeeded, then all the string players and drummers and guitar players and backing vocalists in the world are, are, are not going to make it a good song. And some people make that mistake. Some people, you know, think that if you spend enough money on the production, you know, it'll, it'll make it a good song. And that's, that's a, uh, a myth. That's some wisdom right there, man. Dropping some wisdom. Um, is there a common thread? I know it's a tough thing to say. Uh, your peers, people who you would consider peers, people who you've song written with over the years, um, maybe, maybe not so much the performers, the ones who are singer-songwriters, but the songwriters themselves. Is there a commonality, a common thread? Yeah, and I think it's commitment. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, again, it's just the willingness to put in the time. I've worked with again, so many writers from so many different genres and coming from so many different places attitude-wise. And the ones that work the hardest (laughs) seem to be the luckiest, if you you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like nothing comes easy. And uh, I'm just so convinced that uh, some people think if if they sang it, the first thing that came out of their mouth, therefore it must be brilliant. And I'm more from the school of, Okay, that's the first pass. Now let's let's see where we can go with this. You know. Um, yeah, and if and if they're uh, if they're willing to go along for the journey, then the the rewards are going to be huge. But if some people are like, nah, nah, this was good enough, then you're not writing with them again. Truly, yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about some specific songs? Please. Like break down it. We talked a little bit about uh, "Run to You," obviously, and that being a a song that uh, was intended for other artists originally. Brian didn't think he was going to put his name on that one. Yep. But it's just an anthem, isn't it? Yep. Summer of 69, when songs can paint a picture in your head immediately, when it creates images, like imagery in your brain, you must know you're onto something. Is that an important thing for you? I, I, yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, lyrics and stories are, are so important. And I, I so respect, you know, like Bruce Springsteen. You know, I mean, one of my favorite Springsteen lyrics is, the screen door slammed, Mary's dress waves, you know, like a vision. She dances across the porch as the radio plays. I, mean, I can just see all of that. It's just, he just paints a beautiful picture. And I've always aspired to tell stories like that. And I, I don't pretend to have, have succeeded uh, again and again. But I, I think Summer 69 was maybe a, a, a good story song, you know, rather than just... Uh, 16 lines that rhyme. I think it, I think there's a story in there. Well, you're underselling. That's, that's the understatement of the, of the podcast so far, Jim. <laughs> yeah, there's a, is it 16 lines? Is that what it is? I don't know. Just roughly speaking, <laughs> yeah, give or take. Isn't yeah. that something? But man, don't, there's no clutter, very little clutter in your songs. Well, uh, again, that's putting in the work. Um, you know, Mozart uh, reportedly was asked, how do you know which notes to use when you're composing? And he said, oh, that's the easy part. He said, the hard part is knowing which ones to leave out. So, you know, you really endeavor to be economical. Simple is good. Simple is yeah. hard. And it, it is hard to do, but it's, but it's good. If you're a communicator. You're selling an idea. And I don't mean that in a commercial or mercenary way, but you have an idea that you want to convince others that this is worth listening to. And first of all, it's got to be worth you listening to you have to enjoy what you you are working on and it's got to please you and um 
you know, we spent a lot of time on that song. That was written over the period of a couple of months, not every day, but we'd leave it and come back to it because we didn't think we'd got it right. In fact, it was not called Summer 69. Just like the song Drops of Jupiter, the lyric Summer 69 appeared, see, got my first real six string, water at five and time, played it to my fingers, but it was a Summer 69. That's the only time that phrase appeared in the song. And we finished the song, and we, we thought we were finished, and the song was called uh, Best Days of My Life. Right. So those are the best days of my life. And, and that was our title. That was our, our payoff. And, and we left Also it a good title, by the way. Or, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. might have worked. It might have worked. But we came back to it uh, a month or a few weeks later, I forget, and we thought, you know, it's not, it's not as good as it could be. And, and we kind of looked at the lyric and went, you know, Summer 69, that, that's got a sound to it. That rolls off your tongue. And the, the alliteration was pleasing. So we, we literally shoehorned that phrase into a few gaps in, in the song and then repeated it several times on the, in the fade. And then suddenly it was like, okay, this makes more sense. But even then, even then, Brian nearly left it off the album because we, we didn't think we'd, we'd got it right. Um, and honest to God, when I hear it on the radio now, I don't remember what we didn't like about <laughs> it. But, but, but we, we didn't think it was right. We honestly didn't think we'd, we'd accomplish what we'd set out to do. You guys are a tough sell on, on yourselves, huh? Well, that's the yeah. ticket. You, you have to be. You have to be hard on yourselves. We, we, we were hard on each other. Yeah. You know, we were brutal. Uh, early on, like, just decided we're not going to eat around the bush here. If, if I don't like something Brian suggested, I would just say, I don't like that. And he would say the same to me. And vice versa. If, if he came up with something great, I would say, that's amazing. So we were very honest with each other. And, uh, and again, adhered to that rule, the best idea wins. So I think... Every song we wrote was the best that he and I were capable of in, in that moment. And you weren't just hanging out, having that, tea. You were working. You were, there, was a, there was an end game there. We worked really yeah. hard, and we still do. That's awesome. Uh, when's the last time you wrote a song? With, With anybody? anybody? Yeah. Uh, earlier this year, uh, yeah, uh, probably January. I mean, I literally wrote 52 weeks a year for yeah. decades. And, you know, not so much now. I mean, I'm a little... People say, I'm, I'm 70 next birthday. People say, are you retired? I go, no, just retired. <laughs> <laughs> you just take the foot off the gas a little, that's all. Right? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You've, you've earned it. <laughs> you retired. No, just tired. That's, that's, that's a good line. <laughs> yeah. Cuts like a knife. Man, oh man. It, it, that song, I just think guitar tone, I can hear it in my head. As soon as I say the title, where did that one come from? Yeah. Well, I, we, we would just sit in a room sometimes with, we started with no ideas at all. And on that particular song, I was playing bass, Brian was playing guitar, and we just probably played random chords for about an hour. And Brian would just mumble things, uh, no lyrics per se, but just uh, like make noises. Like for phrasing purposes or whatever. Just just gobbledygook, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, not quite la, 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 but you know, not, not far off. Yeah. And at one point, at one point, he sang the phrase cuts like a knife, and I, I stopped, and I said, that, that was really cool. He said, what? I said, that phrase you just sang, cuts like a knife. He didn't even He didn't, even he didn't remember saying it. No. <laughs> and so, so we, we just, that was our, literally, 
I mean, the analogy is you've, all you've got now is a seed. Just, you've got a little pip and you, and you plant it and, and, and let it grow. So you've got to start with something. Literally, when he mumbled that phrase, I think up, up to that point, we maybe had some chords on guitar and bass that were somewhat pleasing. That song is pretty much just a circular chord progression anyway, D, yeah. D G, C, if I remember. Um, and so we just started repeating Cuts Like a Knife again and again. You know, you, you, you've got this idea now, so you kind of stretch it and you just stretch it and grow it. And, you know, a couple of hours later, you, you've got pretty much the, the skeleton and maybe some flesh on the bones. Are you, you messing know? with tempo during that time and everything? Pretty much not. You, we, you kind of... Um, you settle on that early on? Yeah, we kind of had a, a tempo okay. that, we were, that we were jamming on, and I don't think that changed at all. We were pleased with the chord progression and just fishing for a melody and, and then later lyrics. So, yeah, that song just kind of grew from a mumble. Because that, that grew from a mumble. Incredible. And that, man, right, like, it's in the pocket right away. Just that, that you know, the proverbial pocket. It just, it just, it's right there. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm grateful. Like everyone says, when, when I was a kid, everybody took either piano lessons or accordion lessons. It was almost, you know, you just did it. And the idea was, you know, if you can learn piano or accordion, the rest, you know, then you can always learn another instrument after that. And I, knowing what I know now, I would encourage anyone with even the slightest musical aspirations to start with drums. Just learn to play drums and, and then any instrument you pick up after that, you know, your playing is going to be imbued with, with some, kind of, some kind of feel, you know. Uh, Steven Tyler uh, was a drummer before he was a, a singer. Yeah. You know, um, and, and he's the most, you know, probably the most rhythmical person I've, I've written with. Phil Collins, look at all the melodies and harmonies that guy wrote, you know. Yep. It's quite yep. something. Don Henley. It's, it's, uh, Truly, there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's incredible! I did not know you were going to go there. You should start with the drums. It's that's that's incredible because often, you know, what do you call a guy that hangs out with musicians? A drummer, <laughs> a drummer, yeah. right? I yeah, mean, that, yeah. that's that's the that's what they get, right? They're not yeah. often considered a part of the um, the musical yeah. core. Or the sign on the door: "Drummers must be accompanied by an adult." <laughs> oh man, that's and, and before I forget, when you said piano and accordion, that was one of the two instruments you could take. Not a whole lot of accordion players out there right now. Not anymore, uh, no. right? Uh, um, no, I was thinking, what's the difference between a dead skunk in the middle of the road and a dead accordion player in the middle of the road? Uh, one of them was on the way to a job. <laughs> the skunk was on the way home from a gig. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That, that ends the comedy portion of the podcast. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about heaven. Is there a sense of satisfaction? I mean, you got, I think you guys, or you had mentioned that maybe Ryan wasn't even totally convinced that Summer of 69 was going to end up on the record. And you said, when you hear it on the radio now, you don't understand where your hesitancy came from because it is quite a perfectly baked cake, isn't it? Um, that I, I, song. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, sure. I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you know you're finished, especially with a song like Heaven that is quite intricate? Um, that's another really good question. And I'll, I'll digress for, for just a minute. Please. Because, because I've worked with other writers who didn't know when we were finished. Um, I remember one in particular, I won't even mention a name, but uh, we wrote a song together and I was really pleased and then she went to her producer to record it, but he he convinced her that it needed more, and they and they kept going. And 
if you think about maybe, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, the Mona Lisa, the last dab of paint, and he stands back and goes, done. Yeah. And then another painter comes along and starts, <laughs> you know. So it, it's a really good question. How do you know when you're done? And yeah. I don't really know the answer other than, as I mentioned early on, you're in a room with another person. Uh, the last thing on your mind consciously uh, is you know, who's going to be hearing this in an auditorium a year from now. You're just in the moment. You just, you want it to be something that you are pleased with. Gotcha. So, so I think, yeah, that's just kind of like, okay, we're, and, and we, we, Brian in particular, he was really like often the one to say, you know, I think we can do better. I think the lyric in the second verse could, could be better. And I was sometimes the one to go, oh man, <laughs> You know, we spent hours on that, but we'd go back and he'd be right. We, we always, we always made it better. But yeah, I don't know the answer to that. How do you know when you're done? Yeah. That, I, I've talked to people in the past and they're like, well, that's what a good producer's for, but you're also the producer often. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I've never been fond of producers taking it somewhere else. I mean, Brian and I, that's the other thing we did. I've got shelves and shelves of tapes and now it's all MP3s on my computer. But every song he and I ever wrote, we recorded a definitive demo. I'm not allowed to play them because Brian likes to keep them under wraps. Um, it's kind of like you're, you know, it's a little too uh, too much information. But I could play you the demo for Guts Like a Knife, and I could play you the record. And, uh, you know, Mickey played almost exactly on drums what I played on the demo, except played it way better because she's a great drummer and, and Dave Taylor played almost exactly what I played on the bass and, and so on. And every song we've ever written, the demo goes to the band and they replicate it almost note for note because every note on the demo was given a great deal of thought. So we don't just write the song. We write, the, we dress it up. We put the icing on the cake. So you could theoretically release the demos and the actual finished product doesn't stray too far. Not if, too, if, I mean, at all, if at all, if at all. Yeah. I, I don't want to oversell it because yeah. uh, again, Brian's band, plays amazing uh whether it was bob clear mountain or whoever was, re was recording it makes it sound amazing but you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the two just in terms of uh, orchestration and content and that sort of thing well that's there, there's your there's your hard work there's that work ethic and everything like we're, we're not handing this to anybody until it's done yeah yeah and and we were precious about that yeah so no producer ever took it somewhere that we didn't like it. But that's, that's, that's with Brian. I mean, I did some writing with Alice Cooper, and I was really pleased with what he and I did in my studio, and we demoed it, but his producer took it. This, and it wasn't Bob Ezra, it was somebody else. Yeah. His producer took it somewhere else, that, and when I heard the finished product, I was like, oh, no. You yeah. know, come on, you kind of wrecked it, you know? Man, it's like... Uh, uh, I played around in bands a little bit here and there. And uh, I, I remember, particularly with lead guitarists, they would be like, they have this great thing. I'd be like, that's amazing. Don't change that. That's good. Keep it there. And then they're like, no, but I just kind of want to do this thing. And then six minutes later, they can't remember the great idea that they had at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. They kind of stray so far from it. That's a thing, right? Well, I, again, even in a, yeah, in a songwriting context is... Uh, the self-policing part of it, and you can police yourself or you can have a partner like I did with Brian yeah. who says, well, like me with Cuss Like a Knife, I said, stop, stop, that that was great. you know." And he, he might not have 
noticed. It had yeah, he drove past it. Yeah. Yeah. And then once you've identified it, then then you hang on to it. You like, you know, slot that in and it stays. So and then every time something great comes along, you slot it in. And, and the next thing you know, you've, you've, you know, built a song. I mean, songwriting is architecture. You know, it's, it's parts, it's pieces. They have to fit together. They have to, you know, have shape and form. And, um, you know, so, you, yeah, if, you, if you've done something great, acknowledge it to, your, to yourself and to your partner and slot it in. Because you, you can keep changing forever and, and never, yeah. never finish the song, back to your other comment. Yeah. What's the longest song you ever wrote? Duration wise, yeah, like 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 five minute song or yeah, how long like it an took eleven. To write. No, an like Do you ever write an eleven minute song? Do you ever write an opus? I mean, I know that's not your bag. Gosh. That's not your wheelhouse, right? So, yeah. Um, well, I mean, long. Yeah, I think the longest songs we wrote, starting in two thousand sixteen, and for three years, we wrote the uh, music for Pretty Woman the musical. Okay, and uh, some of the scenes were like 10 minutes long. So we would write 10 minutes of music for that scene. That's so almost that, like that a was, score. That's scoring a film almost, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But there's a song in it too, you know, yeah. a verse and a chorus. And we had to stray a little bit from our normal kind of structure um, to accommodate. Was that fun? It, you know, it was, um, yes, <laughs> yes and no. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it was fun and hell in equal measure. It was, and someone told me this, you know, Broadway isn't so much writing as it is rewriting. So the director would send us back to the drawing board again and again gotcha. and again and again. And, and it, it got a little frustrating. Um, he wasn't always wrong. Sometimes he sent us back and, and we did uh, better work. But it got after three years of that uh, on the same project and being sent back to the drawing board I think one or two many times it got a little tedious. Yeah, you, you always wanted you want the no notes, no notes. That's what you want, right? Yeah. When you get you give them a song, no notes, no notes. Excellent. Let's go. <laughs> You've done this, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there something that comes to mind immediately when you think about Brian? I mean, that's probably a, the most important relationship outside of your personal relationships. This professional one that you've got, which is also a personal relationship with Brian, obviously, conveying so many ideas over the years. But is there is there a song that comes to mind for you when you think about him? I mean, probably Summer '69. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, it depends what you think about. I, mean, I remember Sean, Sean Lennon, Lennon being asked, asked well, like, "What do you think, think about, about when you think of Strawberry Fields Forever?" And he said, "I I, I think about a session in in the studio with the other guys." You know, so most of my memories with Brian are. You know, we spent a lot of years in sitting almost nose to nose, you know, yeah. or, or across the table from each other. We, we spent, I wouldn't even start to put a, a number on it, thousands of hours, just the two of us in a room. So, you know, when I think of heaven, I, I can still picture me at the piano and Brian standing beside me, you know, as we sort of just jammed our way through, you know, piecing that song together and Summer 69, I remember me on bass and him on guitar. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and then great. when I think of Brian, I, I think of what a great singer he is. You know, what a, what a gift he has as a, as a vocalist. Um, your relationship with, uh, with the Aerosmiths. Yeah. What, what a lovely collaboration that, that's been. It's so nice to see um, uh, the, the amount of music that you guys were able to create together. What was it like writing with Steven Tyler? And Joe Perry. 
Everything you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it was just, it was wonderful. They're both just lovely, generous guys. Uh, Stephen is like working, well, he's a, he's a genius to start. He's just so, so talented. Uh, just, he's got, the thing with Stephen is he's got so many ideas that your job as a collaborator is to kind of, you know, uh, like I said with Mozart, is kind of decide which ones to, to leave out because yeah. they're they're all so good. It's just endless. He's like a two year old who's just eating the whole candy bar. He's like like just bouncing off the walls, just endless energy. But he's not so, like I don't have anything today. What do you got? It's not that's not Steven Tyler. N- never ever. Yeah. He's just he hits the ground running. Uh, Joe is just a very very quiet guy. Uh, sits in the corner and comes up with these amazing guitar riffs. So some of the interesting parts of working with Stephen and Joe and observing them uh, as a fly on the wall was Joe would come up with a riff. Stephen sings melodically to Joe's riff and then quite quickly starts to get lyrics on that. So some of their writing is just Joe has a riff and then Stephen takes that as the melody and then he writes the lyric, and then the song kind of grows from there. So that was a really interesting thing. As much I think as I that's loved, called, I think that's called magic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they, the two of them, it was just a, a marvel to, you know, observe their their process, and then just so amazing to be able to, to jump in. They they would get to that point, so they'd get the riff and the and the and the melody, and then it would kind of stop, and then I'd go, <laughs> how about this, you know, and I'd jump in and maybe fill in the next gap, and it, it kind of leapfrogged like that. But the two of them together is quite phenomenal. How did, they, how did that relationship happen with you and those guys? Uh, again, um, my friend Bruce Fairburn, who I was in the band Prism with, right. you know, he, he went on to you know, produce Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and ACDC and others. He would, um, I guess, speaking of generosity, he, he would pull me into these projects. Yeah. You know, I mean, he called me up one day and said, uh, how do you feel about uh, writing with Stephen and Joe from Aerosmith? Yeah. So he, he brought them over to my house. I'd, I'd never met them before. And of course, uh, I was a huge fan. I mean, yeah. Who wasn't? And he just brought Stephen and Joe into my house, introduced us. And Bruce said, I'll be back. This was like lunchtime. He said, I'll be back at dinner. I hope you, you, hope you have a song. And he walked out. And I'm there with Stephen Tyler and Joe Perry. Wow. Yeah. That is, that uh, like, is the ultimate vouch. I vouch for this guy. I'm taking it to his house. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and they were, I, I mean, they were kind of forced into collaborating there. I didn't realize till later, but they weren't there completely unwillingly, but um, they just signed with a new label and they'd just been through a rough couple of years. They lost their record contract. They weren't selling records. They had some severe issues with drugs and alcohol yep. and their career was kind of on the rocks. So, Geffen Records uh, signed them, John Claudner, A&R man, and John said, look, here's the deal. First of all, everybody goes to rehab, and then you're going to write with some people that I have in mind. And I, I think they were like, well, we've never done that before. And Claudner said, well, you're, you're going to do it now. He, he kind of wrote yeah. them pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to his credit and, and to their credit, uh, you know, they worked hard. They got sober. And I think that was the first time they'd written without the, you know, I was going to say help of or hindrance of 
you know, drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So they were they were just cleanly sober. Um, it's a heck of a position for you to be in. Well, huh? and, and, yeah. and actually, the guy that stayed with uh, Bruce left, but uh, they had a, a bodyguard, uh, a former cop, really nice guy, Bob Dowd, and his job was to make sure that nobody gave them drugs. So I guess uh, I, I was on the. As I like to joke, I had no interest, no no intention of sharing my drugs with Harris. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't Very do, good. I don't do drugs, but um, that's I, I assumed as much. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So by the end of day one, we wrote the song "Ragdoll," like eighty percent of it, and then Stephen and I finished the lyrics the next day. But I, we just got down to business, and believe me, I was sweating bullets. I was freaking out. First of all, I'm a fan, and I'm now in a room with Stephen Tyler in your room, your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And expected to come up with something, and the, you know, the pressure was really, really on. But after that first day, you know, um, we got acquainted, we got along personally and musically, and then for the next however many weeks it was, we, we got a ton of work done. Ragdoll uh, done in two days? Pretty much. I, I don't want to say exactly two days, but, yeah. but the very first day we got very far along. Incredible. I, I guess the only thing was it wasn't called Ragdoll, it was called Ragtime. Um, and that obviously... Somewhere along the way, that got changed. Claudner, John Claudner, didn't like the title "Ragtime," so he made us change it. So um, that's a good one. That's a good yeah. one. Um, all right, we uh, we have to talk about love for a second uh, because there are two songs here, and love is obviously uh, it's a subject that's been broached before in the world of songwriting. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice. Once or twice. Um, Tina Turner's "It's Only Love." Let's start there. Well, uh, that was originally just written for Brian. So it wasn't uh, intended to be a duet. It was just um, going to be another song on the Reckless album. Yeah. And Tina was breezing through town. She was opening for Lionel Richie. This is just before her uh, big hit, What's Love Got to Do With It? Yeah. Uh, so she wasn't, uh, you know, famous part two yet. Uh, she'd been kind of in the wilderness after the Ike and Tina Turner thing. Yes. So, uh, Brian had always been a fan, so he, I think, had his manager talk to her manager, you know, what her chances she'd come in and um, and sing with us. So she came in the studio, and she was amazing, lovely, just a, just a dynamo of yeah. energy. But the song wasn't in her key. So she sang it, and I, I remember thinking, oh, this isn't going to work. Uh, it was way too low for her, because it was in Brian's range. Because yeah. we'd already recorded it with, with Brian's vocal on but she said, let, run the tape again. Let me, have, let me try something different. And she took the melody up a third, I think, more into her range. And, and then right away, it, it worked. So uh, she was in there for an hour or two, max. Came wow. in, performed amazingly, and, and left. And then they you know, took that song on the road. Brian opened for her in Europe, and they, they performed that song many, many times uh, together. Great collaboration. Okay, so yeah, truly, really great collaboration. And then Hearts, what about Love? This is the second one with Love in the title, and a signature song for that group. It, it was yeah. uh, like Aerosmith. They'd had a couple of albums that didn't sell well. I think their label was going to drop them. Uh, they were in a bit of trouble career-wise, and they needed uh, desperately needed a, a hit. So, and that was 1985. So. Go back to 1982, and I got asked to, um, not to write with, but I got asked to do some arrangements, just 
write some guitar parts and, and so on for a group called Toronto. Yeah. A great band, great Canadian band. So I was living in Vancouver. So I flew out to Toronto and was working with them, uh, just rehearsing on their songs. And I went for dinner one night with, um, to the home of the guitar player and the two guitar players, Brian and Sharon. They were a couple. Went to their house for dinner one night. And after dinner, we ended up going down to their home studio and writing What About Love? Like in a couple of hours. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was really pleased with the song. And uh, so back to the story of there was 12, there were 12 spots on the album. I think they had 20 songs. The band voted on, you know, uh, which songs would go on the album. And I think What About Love was number 13. So it, it didn't make the 12. So it, right. got, it got rejected. Unbelievable. So, yeah, it, so it ended up on a shelf somewhere. And so fast forward 1985, three years later, uh, Michael McCarty, who was a publisher for EMI, um, somehow acquired the Solid Gold catalog, which was Toronto's label. Yep. And in listening to all the songs in the catalog, I think mostly the un, unrecorded songs, he came across What About Love and he thought, wow, this, this could be great for heart. So we sent it to Don Grierson at Capitol Records in Los Angeles, who gave it to Ron Nevison, who was producing Heart, who played it for Anne and Nancy Wilson in Seattle. And Nancy got up and walked out of the room and said, I will not record that song. And Anne said, I hate it. Uh, and Ron Nevison said, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I think it's, it's good. And they said, no, no chance. So anyway, somehow he talked them into, he said, look, how about record it? If you still hate it, I promise it won't go on the album. <laughs> so they recorded it um, and it ended up being their, their comeback single. I've seen interviews with Anne recently. I, I think she still doesn't love it. I think she appreciates what it did for them, but I, still, I think it's still a little bit of a... Isn't that something? Yeah, thing about it, it wasn't our song, you know. But just, again, and I've got quite a few stories like that, like Run To You, What About Love, songs that, you know, didn't make it the first time around, but found a, a home later. God, it's just, it's so good you kept them alive. Um, you're, you're, by the way, uh, you mentioned before with the Aerosmith guys in, in your house and they weren't allowed to do any drugs and you said you didn't do any. That is very obvious. Your recall is stellar. The names that you just listed off and the story of this journey to a song that defined a band, arguably one of their definitive singles, you remembered everybody's name, every executive's name, every, that was, that's incredible. Well, listen, I, I go to the fridge and open it and then go, why did I open the fridge? <laughs> so, so I appreciate your comment. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Um, we, uh, we have to talk about Tears Are Not Enough. This, to me, when I think about this song, uh, this is the height of the video era. There is no more important channel in my life than much music in Canada and MTV in the U.S. Yeah. And this was a song that's obviously took on greater meaning. It was done altruistically and um, for a cause. And that's sometimes a dangerous thing to get into because if you hit people over the head too hard with a message, it can be uh, sometimes people are not receptive to being hit over the head with messages. But this is something that you guys hit out of the park. I mean, together with Mr. Foster and uh, I believe there are a few other writers on that song, right? Yeah. But that song was 
so ubiquitous for so long, it had a beautiful life to it. And I think a, a lot of Canadians felt great pride in that song because on the heels of your brilliant songwriting, everybody was able to kind of collaborate and step up and be a part of what was going on on the planet at the time. So it was a pretty big, big event, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was blown away to see it all come together as quickly as it did. Much credit to Brian's manager, Bruce Allen, for bringing all those people into the same room at the same time. Yeah. Quite remarkable. What do you remember about it? What do you remember about it being out there in the world? How did you feel about it? What's your relationship with that song? Well, I mean, again, back to the John Lennon story, what do you remember? I mean, I remember sitting in my studio with David Foster in my home, in my basement studio, just, you know, writing the, the, the first bits of the song. And then, uh, and Brian came over and joined in. And it only took a week from David and I and Brian getting together until we were in the Toronto studio actually recording it. So Wow. So it, it's a little bit of a whirlwind. but yeah. uh, And then I remember sitting on the airplane flying to Toronto, me and Brian and Foster and Mike Reno from Loverboy looking at the lyric and going, okay, here's the list. We've got Gordon Lightfoot, Bert Cummings, Johnny Mitchell. Okay, uh, how about Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot sings the first line? Uh, oh, what this what, line here, that, that'd be great fun. for Getty. What yeah. fun. That'd be great for Getty Lee, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Getty Lee for this one. Corey Hart would be great there. So yeah, we did that on the airplane. And then being in the room, I mean, I'm such a lifelong fan of, of Joni Mitchell. So to literally be in the room when she sang, for me, was like just you know, a fan dream come true. And then, you know, meeting others of my heroes. I mean, Oscar Peterson, uh, Burton Cummings. Um, uh, it's like the best fantasy football team of all time. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I was just, you know, partly trying to do my job. And the other part of me was just a kid, like, freaking out. Yeah, but, you know, all that work from that seven-year-old that fell out of love with piano, I mean, it all... You were entrusted with it because you had earned it. You'd earned the spot. I was proud to be part of it. It's incredible. Um, Jim, it's been a true honor and pleasure talking to you. Thank you. What's the line? Talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Right? Yeah. So sometimes yeah. it's like, well, just, just listen to the songs, man. Just listen to the music. <laughs> Everything I wanted to say was in there, but you have been incredibly generous, insightful. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the chat. It was a real treat to get to talk to you. Well, your questions were great and made me think. So thank you for that. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes tough to walk down memory lane. I really appreciate you doing that. And thank you. Thank you for the music. Truly, thank you for the music. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This has been Storytellers. Join me, Paul McGuire, live this summer with Kim Mitchell, Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, 5440's Neil Osborne, and many others for an experience you'll remember always. The 97 South Song Sessions Songwriters Festival is happening this July, the 21st to the 23rd, in Penticton, British Columbia's incomparable wine country. An intimate, bluebird-style music performance that features songwriters in the round, playing their hits and relating stories of a life in music. Tickets and information at 97southsongsessions.com. Download the free Stingray Music mobile app and listen to the 97 South Song Sessions channel